Welcome to another episode of Variety's Strictly Business podcast, where we talk with some of the brightest minds working in media today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety Intelligence Platform. Like everything else these days, the TV industry is in a state of flux, to say the least. That's meant a recalibration of all kinds of practices and processes for people like my next guest. Ken Basin is not just the author of the 2018 book, The Business of Television. He's the head of business affairs at Paramount Television. Welcome back to Strictly Business, Ken. Thanks, Andy. It's really fun to be back. Yeah, I went back and checked, and you were on the podcast almost exactly two years ago, July 31st of 2018. And it's only been two years, but honestly, it feels like 200. Uh, yeah, I, you, you know, I think it's it's been an exciting decade since I last spoke to you. I think uh, <laughs> we've all uh, lived many lifetimes and journeys since then. So, uh, yeah, you know, no interesting updates, right? We can make a quick short one of this, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it should be pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, when we last talked, Peak TV was topic A, and it seemed like the industry's worst problem was, oh, there's too many TV shows. Fast forward to now, and there's barely any shows in production due to the pandemic. And I'd imagine that means deal making is going quite differently for you these days. Definitely. I mean, certainly in the simplest terms, the focus is on development right now because that's what we're in a position to do. And, uh, you know, Paramount, like every company, has been thinking hard about how we can continue to do the most business in the best way with the circumstances that are in front of us. And so we know that um, there's a lot of work to do to manage the pandemic right now, but that there will be another side of it. And so we're preparing ourselves with a lot of um, new project generation, still working extensively with writers and producers, uh, trying to be very thoughtful about uh, how we projects together and when we take them to market to make sure that they get the best opportunity to succeed and don't get swallowed up uh, within the moment that we're in. Uh, But business is absolutely moving forward. Uh, If you would ask me in March, uh, what would I be doing if lockdown was still going in late July? I would have answered probably a lot of yoga and building Legos. But as it is, I'm as busy as I was uh, on the first day of the lockdown, which is as busy as I was a week before it began. (laughs) Well, let's put development aside for a second. Is there any activity with regard to production resuming at some point for shows that have obviously already made it through development and are ready to go and all the things that go into creating a safe environment for production? Should it happen again anytime soon? Absolutely. And and there's a couple wings in which that's taking place. Uh, One is just extensive... Deal making is is one of the right words, but really just coordination and collaboration between you know studios and networks in the environment, uh, working together to come up with plans for how we return, and working to figure out what are the sort of economic consequences of the moment and how those are going to be borne by the various parties involved with the show. Uh, you know, I think every large company is undertaking its own process to come up with return to work rules the new procedures that we want in place to uh, assure the safety and security of cast and crew. Uh, But our network partners have opinions about that sort of thing as well. And so part of the process is, uh, you know, coming up with joint plans that incorporate the priorities and needs and concerns of uh, both the networks and the studios. And in a sense, uh, you know, those are only two of the voices of the room. We're also incorporating the opinions and requirements of government. We're in extensive negotiations with the unions, all of them over return to work rules, um, 
which involve, you know, a lot of commitments to them about how to keep their members safe. And all the while, you know, all of these things come with costs. So we are, you know, in constant dialogue with the networks about what's the appropriate allocation of those burdens in a way that is both fair and also, frankly, uh, allows these things to continue. I don't think it's anybody's desire or really that anybody would be well served by completely disclaiming responsibility for for any aspect of what's going on. Uh, one of the lessons certainly uh, I'm taking and I hope others are taking of this pandemic moment is we live in a complex interconnected ecosystem where we all rely on each other. I mean, really, we should have all known this all along. And so we're trying to bring that attitude and perspective into coming up with solutions for what we're, we're dealing with right now, because there is economic pain to go around. And, um, you know, we ultimately want this to be uh, sustainable and survivable for ourselves and the parties that we work with every day. Uh, in addition, as we're now a few months in, we are starting to look ahead to uh, deal making for returns to production. And that's a you know tentative process. And it's a very, uh, I think, custom process on a project by project basis, because the situation isn't different everywhere, uh, excuse me, isn't identical everywhere in the world. And so our sort of preparedness and anticipated timetables for going back to production in Vancouver may be very different from those in Los Angeles, may be very different from those in Australia, depending on conditions on the ground. But we are also starting the process of making deals with uh, you know, line producers, with casting directors, and with other sort of key contributors to the production of a series in anticipation of coming back but doing our best to prepare ourselves if those um, you know, optimistic hopes aren't always borne out and we have to push back even further. This all sounds horrifically complex. And I know even in the best of circumstances uh, can be quite contentious. So what is the culture of deal-making right now? Because everyone's got to you know, row the oars in the same direction to make it work. Yeah, and I think there's a recognition of that. And I uh, certainly one thing that I've observed and, and marveled at with others who do what I do is, for the most part, the uh, culture of deal-making right now has been very positive and collaborative. I think there's a, a sense both that uh, on a professional and industrial level, it is incumbent upon all of us to figure this out so all of us can continue to you know, earn revenue, run our companies, make projects. And at the same time, I think there's a recognition among everybody who's, you know, bouncing a kid on their knee during their work Zoom meetings or otherwise trying to reconcile uh, their, their parental responsibilities, their professional responsibilities, and maybe just a tiny corner of personal sanity that everybody on the other side of the phone or the other side of the Zoom is going through much the same thing. And so I think um, it's really been a healthy environment where people have kind of brought their best selves to the negotiations. Um, and and try to approach things in a way that's solution-oriented rather than adversarial in, in a negotiating climate that is sometimes, you know, particularly adversarial among many industries, I think, as Hollywood has a reputation for. I'd say if in deal-making, one clause I've heard more about in the last four months and possibly the last 10 years is force majeure, uh, which I can only imagine how different those clauses are in terms of how they're structured going forward? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, the biggest difference is that, as you say, that it's it's a pair of words on everybody's lips, because traditionally in deal making, uh, you know, force majeure uh, and, and just to kind of 
define terms for for those that it is yeah. you know second nature to. You know, force majeure is a concept under you know basic contract law about excusing performance if there is a sort of major unexpected third party event that interferes with uh, parties doing business under contract. And so the classic examples of force majeure are war, um, uh, labor strikes can be considered force majeures, um, floods, fires, big sort of natural disasters, earthquakes, acts of God is a sort of synonym that's sometimes used. And in traditional Hollywood deal making, you always knew that the force majeure was kind of a background aspect of virtually any agreement that you entered into, but it was something you virtually never talked about. It was routine. Um, it was something that never came up in the deal making phase uh, where people are focused on substantive terms. It was something that you worked out in the paperwork once you got past that first step. Right now, especially with an eye towards uh, productions coming back, uh, you know, people are aware that the that force majeure plays an important role in what we're doing right now and really for the first time in my career force majeure is being introduced as a deal point in the initial deal making phases uh and one of the things that's interesting about it is there is no sort of disparity of information out there everybody's negotiating these points kind of you know looking at the world and having the same uh observations and experiences and so talent are looking for protections that if there's a resurgence of COVID that you know shuts production back down again after it resumes, that they will be protected in their compensation or at least um, you know protected in their flexibility if they don't want to wait around indefinitely. And uh, studios are as finely attuned as ever to the importance of these clauses in protecting ourselves, uh, because while we're not looking to sort of uh, manipulate any situation with talent, if we are forced to shut down production. We need to be able to mitigate the expense of that and, um, you know, protect our ability to keep key cast and crew together. So, uh, you know, something that became uh, that spent many years as an afterthought has become a central deal point, uh, which, you know, again, brand new to all of us in this game. Another aspect that I would imagine is changing much for you is how you're dealing with the AMPTP these days, uh, given that there's also the backdrop of all this pandemic issues playing out while uh, tensions with the guilds uh, are obviously front and center. Uh, what has that been like? Sure. So, uh, look, 2020 was going to be a big year for the AMPTP no matter what, because 2020 is on the every three-year cycle where we're negotiating the DGA, WGA, and SAG-AFTRA agreements anyhow. Uh, and so, uh, you know, no surprise that there was a role for them this year. But, uh, you know, the pandemic, maybe more than anything that I've encountered uh, in my career, is a true pan industry issue. Um, something that is affecting every producer more or less equally. I've never seen a situation where all production everywhere in the world ground to a halt all at once. And so when you're facing a, a, a challenge that truly touches on every part of the industry and affects everybody, there's an important role for a trade group like the AMPTP so that we can make smart decisions because, you know, ultimately, um, I think Hollywood gets through this by recognizing our, our shared uh, interests and our shared fate and the AMPTP becomes a vehicle for that. So uh, j just as the AMPTP is the central body through which we organize our collective bargaining, as we're now dealing more extensively 
with the unions on return to work rules, the ANBTP is the vehicle through which we're having those conversations. So every company doesn't have to negotiate independently with the unions. The AMPTP has also had an important role in kind of being the touch point for the industry with the state and federal government officials. Uh, Again, we are submitting plans and white papers to the governor in California and in New York, you know, articulating the industry's vision for when and how production should resume. Uh, The AMPTP has allowed us to speak more or less with one voice uh, so that we can have that conversation most effectively. Um, okay. Ultimately, as I said, you know, th- th- this is an area where I- I'm sort of, wh- when I look at the challenge in front of us, I'm reminded of kind of other similarly structural challenges to television or film or entertainment where uh, maybe the industry wasn't always as smart about looking at itself as a unitary whole. And sometimes I think about, Uh, the rise of home taping in the early 80s, where the music industry and the film and television industry viewed themselves as separate and competitive and did not uh, work together to come up with legislative solutions or regulatory solutions to protect themselves from piracy. And as a result, I think, suffered a lot more from initially home taping piracy in the 80s, leading to internet piracy in the 2000s, because they did not approach things as a group. Um, and as an industry with common goals. Uh, Here, I think that the industry has been much more intelligent about saying that, you know what, there isn't a division between producers and platforms or studios and networks here or talent and studios. Um, Ultimately, we all get back to work together. And so I think the AMBTP, again, has been a very useful vehicle for taking that uh, collective approach. Got it. and if, as we talk here, I feel like we're adding layer upon layer of complexity. So let me just throw yet another thing on the stack here, which is the diversity issue, uh, which is obviously uh, a huge subject in the wake of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And, uh, you know, I'm curious, does that, is that something that is already sort of permeating deal making, permeating even the culture of companies like Paramount right now, given there's so much to reckon with there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it, it operates independently of the pandemic. I think it's it's an issue and a conversation that predates the pandemic. But as you know, uh, I mean, 2020 isn't hurting for big news stories and big challenges to society. Hmm. And we are all being forced to sort of reckon with racial injustice and inequity uh, on a social level in a really meaningful way and, and, and more forcefully than has been the case of the past. So I think the industry has talked the talk about taking diversity and inclusion seriously for some time, but uh, you know, the events of 2020, the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, the murders of, of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and others have um, you know, encouraged everybody to start walking the walk in a bigger way and to really commit themselves to these these issues in in more tangible ways. Uh, I think a lot of companies are looking at their own numbers. I think Paramount has a good track record uh, organically over the last few years of seeking out diverse storytellers and diverse stories. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the the moment demands real action and not just platitudes. And so every company is going through a period of introspection about where it's truly at and how it, you know, get, gets to a better place. 
And I'm sure that's also uh, working itself into where we started the conversation in terms of your your focus now on the development front. I understand that that sort of precedes a pace, but I, given you don't really know when a lot of what you're talking about in development will actually be put in production, how does that impact the the usual development deal making? Well, um, for one, it requires a lot of communication between the studio and the talent and the representatives about what's the plan and what's the process. You know, deal making is all well and good, but deal making is really designed to uh, the way that I think about it as kind of get it, getting every uh, documenting everybody being on the same page and what our understandings and what the rules will be will be. But the sort of you know root of that, like another step up, is just actually understanding each other and having a plan. So we're having transparent conversations with our uh, with the writers and producers that we work with about what we think the timetable should be. Um, Paramount has always invested heavily in internal development. You know, there are studios that focus more on ifcom arrangements, put together a quick package, take a pitch out, take it to market versus blinds, firm script deals, long internal development and packaging processes. Paramount has always done a bit of both. And certainly we're extra focused on internal development right now because we do not want to, again, take projects out into a marketplace where our buyers are maybe feeling really financially stressed or uh, kind of, you know, struggling with their budgets for the year. And so we're taking our time um, working on second scripts, Bibles and formats. Um, We are uh, being, you you know, we we want to give our projects the best opportunity to succeed. And sometimes that means waiting a minute so that they kind of reach the most receptive audience. And then part of, you know, the next planning aspect of that is how you not cannibalize yourself and you don't rush to take everything to market all at once and to spread things out in a certain way. It's also uh, a task of how you manage kind of pre-existing development and projects that were already well along the way uh, to production um, where maybe the network and the studio agree that creatively this is where we want it. And, you know, in a normal world, this would be ready to go, but we can't proceed right now. So what do we do? And, you know, we're talking to network partners about conditional orders where you know they're making a commitment to the series moving forward subject to you know answering those last questions about what's the cost and what's the production plan in a covid production environment uh because we're still in the process of quantifying that experience um we're also you know uh within our network development generating more material and more scripts uh something that has i think already been a trend of development uh, where you're uh, putting together more written material before you get into production, so that when production does resume, there's the hope of actually smoother and easier production because there's more written material, and the traditional system of kind of rolling the writing and the production process doesn't have to take place the same way. You can walk into the first day of production with more scripts ready. You can have you know your scripts done at an earlier phase in the production process. Um, And it's a way to both kind of productively use the time we can doing the work we can and putting ourselves in a position to have the best production experience when that's back on the table. So you've got the development pipeline humming. Uh, I'm curious what this means in terms of, uh, you know, have you revised your expectations in terms of the peak TV trend? Is this is this still something that's going to be a hockey stick curve flying off to the top right of the chart? Mm-hmm. Or are we seeing some disruption of that now? I think we are seeing some disruption of that. Um, 
I, I think that, you know, the, the peak TV curve, even if it was a hockey stick, it was never going to be a perpetual hockey stick. There was always going to be a plateau on the other end of it. And, uh, you know, I do think that this moment may uh, accelerate the arrival of that plateau. I mean, the streaming wars, as, as you know, people like that term, it, they're very competitive, difficult wars. And I think there's broadly been a perception that with the proliferation of all these new streaming services, uh, not all will be able to survive forever. Uh, there's a uh, assumption that, you know, households will tolerate a certain number of subscriptions. Uh, I believe the average household in the research I most recently saw in the U.S. has, if it is a streaming household, has 2.7 streaming subscriptions. How much higher can that go, especially in a time when, you know, put aside the economic stress on the industry and the companies in the industry, there's economic stress on the public, on everybody. People are looking at their budgets, um, you know, they're, they're feeling economically insecure, even if their jobs are still in place for now, and uh, probably asking themselves their hard questions of, do I need four or five subscription services? One of the trope phrases that I've been using for a while is, you know, this time a year and a half ago, there were three premium subscription services. This time next year, there will be eight. And this time four years from now, there will be four. Um, maybe I need to revise that to this time three years from now, there will be four. Um, because ultimately, you know, I think the business plan for all of these companies contemplated being able to tolerate a certain period of time of pain, a certain period of time of operating at a loss to acquire the subscriber base that it needs to kind of advance to the next stage of the industry. And right now, all of these new entrants into the market uh, are going to have a harder time than would have otherwise been the case building up their original content offerings. So putting together that really appealing package to the consumer to justify the initial subscription is a little bit more challenging if you can't load up your number of new shows. And uh, the sort of macroeconomic pressure that everybody is, is under may make it harder for these companies to be willing to operate these services at significant losses for two, three, four years at a time to make it to that phase of profitability. So I do think there's a risk that, um, you know, that the pandemic is going to accelerate the contraction in the number of platforms that are active in the marketplace, which probably comes with a contraction in the overall volume of production that's in the marketplace. Uh, so, you know, it's not the end of peak TV right now, but I do wonder if, you know, peak TV as we understand it, I think when we last spoke, I predicted a, you know, a further five-year runway to peak TV before things were, were going to start really tightening up. I think there's a good chance that that five-year runway may look more like a three-year runway. I hear you. I follow the logic, but I'd also be remiss in not noting that your parent company, Viacom CBS, seems intent on entering this marketplace and a lot later than many of the other players. So how does that bode for your company's effort on this front? Well, I, look, I think I think we have to be clear-eyed about the challenge in front of us. I think for uh, Viacom CBS, the focus is on marshalling the combined resources of the recently merged company and sort of um, uh, bringing to bear for the company uh, quality assets that we've kind of kept in our back pockets. We're we at Paramount are in extensive conversations with um, CBS All Access about Paramount titles that are a good fit for uh, for the service. Uh, 
Paramount's library has always been sort of our big kind of entrant market advantage uh, as an independent studio. Um, a, a, a big reason why we've been able to establish ourselves as quickly as we have is by um, accessing the resources of the great IP that we've got and, and sort of more that has been brought back into the fold because of the combination of CBS and Viacom. Some of that IP was sort of split up between the companies when they uh, divided back in 2006. There's a lot that has been sort of held in reserve um, that we can now deploy for CBS All Access, some kind of crown jewel ideas. Um, I can't say a lot more than that at this phase, other than to say that there's still fuel in the tank. Um, and, and we're going to have to strike that balance between remaining active in the ecosystem and maintaining our relationships with outside companies while supporting the big strategic endeavor of Viacom CBS as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that to me would be the big question. You know, you're going to need a lot of fuel in that tank to, you know, fuel up other rival companies with your content, but at the same time, uh, fueling your own effort. And I know it's early days and it's not clear what what Viacom CBS is exactly doing. Um, But, you know, that also begs another question, which is last time we talked, Viacom CBS did not exist. Uh, you guys were off separately with Viacom. So, you know, sort of layer five in our, uh, you know, complicated stack of, of what's making your life tough these days. Does that change the nature of deal making, uh, having a new parent company? Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly there are lines of, of business that there's a natural expectation that everybody's going to take advantage of. Uh, we, as as Paramount, already had relationships with um, you know Showtime and CBS All Access prior to the merger, but those have deepened tremendously. We still operate on an arm's length basis. We have obligations to participants. Uh, you know, we're trying to maintain our own business, but it's also a deal making context in which you know everybody understands it's got to get done. Um, not figuring it out is not an acceptable result. But the good news is I think everybody uh, is a real professional and the experiences that we've had since the merger um, have actually been really, really uniformly positive in terms of, I think that uh, one thing that I've encountered in large companies, um, and I've worked in large companies over my career, is when different parts of companies are working, you know, intercompany, there's often an expectation on both sides that each is owed a sweetheart deal. And it actually increases the friction rather than decreases it because everybody thinks they should be on the good end of the favor, essentially. Um, it's counterproductive and, um, and it, you know, I think it leads to bad results. The attitude that I've found within the Viacom CBS merger is nobody's expecting anybody to do them tremendous favors. We're expecting each other to work with each other reasonably uh, to kind of, cut the nonsense and find the real business solutions and to, um, you know, operate fairly. And there are real professionals on all sides who understand the marketplace. And so those have been, I think, really productive and for the most part, smooth conversations. Um, It's been, I don't want to say a pleasant surprise because I don't want to, I, I wasn't necessarily so dour on it in advance, but I think it's gone really well. That's good. And we've talked a lot about streaming, but, you know, I remember last time we spoke about you had particular takes on the future of broadcast and cable television in this uh, landscape. 
Have those changed at all? Do they still have seats at the table for who knows how long? Yeah, I mean, so I think I think a lot of my production uh, predictions from our last session um, are have have been borne out to an extent and may be supported by recent events and some uh, you know require some further thought. Uh, when we talked about broadcasters, my going theory was that the best approach for broadcasters would be to refocus on the content that was traditionally successful on their platforms that hadn't been um, as popular in streaming. So things like reality, multi-camera comedies, excuse me, procedural dramas, classic broadcast television. Um, I think that's still true, and I think that's more true than ever. Uh, and I also uh, think it's worth noting that uh, as, as companies are thinking about what kinds of productions can come back into, uh, what kinds of shows can go back into production soonest, those are the shows that are going to find the easiest time to come back. Reality shows with controlled stage environments, especially if you sort of reduce the presence of the audience, uh, multi-camera comedy, same logic, um, versus some of the bigger, complex, location-oriented, large numbers of extras, massive crew shows that are characteristic of quote-unquote premium television or streaming-style television that I think are going to take longer to really get back up to speed. Um, so I, I think that sort of prescription for broadcast holds. And I think that as we look ahead to how they're going to actually program their 2021 and 21, 22 seasons, we're going to see a lot of programming of that type. Uh, you know, cable certainly is, um, it, it, it remains stressed. Um, I think that, uh, you know, when we spoke last, there was a contraction underway in the number of networks that we're going to, that we're investing in scripted programming. Um, and again, particularly quote unquote premium scripted programming. Uh, I think that trend is continuing and we are going to find that some of the networks that, you know, we have gotten used to seeing scripted programming on are going to be turning away from that, uh, that content. In part, that's related to the rise of streaming. The, all of these major new streaming players are associated with traditional legacy media companies. And so I think there's, there's a little question that HBO Max is really the focal point of the new AT&T, Warner Brother environment. Peacock is really the focal point of the new uh, Comcast, NBC, Universal environment. In the same way that Viacom CBS streaming is likely to be a significant focal point of the Viacom CBS strategy going forward, and uh, as as you know, companies are looking how to serve their digital offerings and their cable offerings. You know, streaming is sucking up a lot of the the content, and it's going to affect the programming strategies for cable. Um, I think there will always be a place for scripted on cable, but I think scripted is going to become progressively less common on cable and there will be a focus on um, on specials on unscripted um, with a lot of the uh, kind of traditional dramas that we've gotten used to seeing being pushed more towards the streaming side of the business for streaming it's really about how do you take maximum advantage of this moment uh, you know Netflix's stock has been having quite the time over the last few months um, uh, you know as people are home, it's very obvious that they are uh, looking for ways to pass the time and streaming is an important part of that equation. So uh, I think for every streaming player, it's about how do you sort of use this opportunity to build the relationship with your customer and make sure that it persists so that 
they remain interested in your brand and your service once they're allowed to go back outside again. Well, uh, in keeping with our every two-year podcast schedule, I'm going to ask you to set your calendar for July 2022. It'll be interesting to see how much has changed when we, we do this again. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ken. Thank you, Andy. Always a pleasure. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing.